Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. on staff and everybody we just want to wish you a Merry Christmas first of all and that you have a spend time with your family and your loved ones as well as us because we're family right and that you have a good Christmas and it's great to spend the morning I'm sure after opening presents but in the Lord's presence this morning today I'm going to remind us of good news the most joyous news the world has ever heard it is for everyone everywhere for for today Over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, a rescuer was born for all of us. He is Lord Yahweh, the Messiah. And that is a paraphrase of Luke chapter 2. And that it really is good news. Today I'm going to maybe do something a little differently to the traditional Christmas message. I'm going to speak about the reality that Jesus was born into. Because often I think we forget. We, We get caught up in the fantasy and the the thematic of Christmas. We get caught up in the the carols and the lights and the bells and and the presents, but we forget the reality that Jesus was really born into. And we can all agree the first reality of Jesus is that he was was reality. He, He really existed. Amen? Jesus' existence is historical fact. Did you know that Jesus is proved outside the Scriptures, just as much as He is inside the Scriptures. Right? Jesus is no fairy tale. Like I said, we get caught up in the fantasy of the birth of Jesus, but He's no fairy tale. And especially today, let's reaffirm the reality of Jesus. Am I a bit loud? I feel like I'm booming voice. Okay. (laughs) Our Heavenly Father sent His Son to us to be born from a woman, to breathe our air, and to walk amongst us and to die for us. That is a reality. Let me read you a quote from a doctor called Dr. Simon Gathercole from The Guardian article in a newspaper. It says here, The historical evidence for Jesus of Nazareth is both long established and widespread. Within a few decades of his supposed lifetime, he is mentioned by Jewish and Roman historians, as well as by dozens of Christian writings. So we can see there, both Jewish and Roman historians. Now, let's not put blame on anybody for Jesus' death because we're all to blame, but the Jews and the Romans were pivotal in the crucifixion of Jesus. Amen? And both their historians have proven his existence. Now, let's compare that, for example, does anybody believe in King Arthur, that King Arthur existed? That he's a historic figure. Right? I think if we had to ask anyone in the world, they'll say, yeah, of course King Arthur existed. And don't you dare tell the English that he didn't. Right? No one would argue King Arthur's existence. Let me, let me tell you this now. Compare what I just said, for example, with King Arthur, who supposedly lived around 500 AD. The major historical source for events of that time does not even mention Arthur. And he is, the first, and, and he is first referred to 300 or 400 years after he is supposed to have lived. The evidence for Jesus is not limited to later folklore as are accounts of Arthur. Amazing. I find that amazing. The world has no problems accepting that King Arthur existed, but there's been no writings until 400 years, three, 400 years after his existence. So there's no eyewitness accounts. And that's what's so powerful about Scripture. 
we have eyewitness accounts within Scripture, and I've just told you today that we have witness accounts outside of Scripture by Romans and Jews alike. So can we all agree that Jesus is a reality? I think it's sometimes we forget in the, in the religion of Christianity that He really came down to this earth. You know what I mean? Uh, someone once said, I'm, I may have a problem believing that God existed, but I definitely don't have a problem believing that Jesus did because he's a historical figure and he's across all our history books. Amen? So I don't, I don't encourage you to go into any debates or discussions with people that do not believe. But, you know, there's the, what's that favorite Cypriot Greek comedic pastor you like? J. John. He said, if you want to disprove Jesus' existence, if you want to find out about Jesus, try to disprove his existence. He mentions a couple of authors that wrote, started writing books about disproving Jesus' existence before they got to even halfway, they ended up believing. So it's a historic fact, and I think it's good to remember that. Now let's focus on the era that Jesus was born into, the age that he was born into. Jesus was born into a politically charged time when Israel was under Roman occupation, under Caesar Augustus, and under the local rulership of King Herod. And we all know King Herod from the, the nativity story. But Herod was a, a successful client king, they call him. Or another word is a puppet. He was a successful puppet king, which meant that as long as he paid tribute to Rome and was on the correct side of any Roman rule, then he will found favor with the Romans and he protected his political independence and liberty for the Jews in Israel. If I had to sum him up, he was pretty much a selfish man. As long as he did what the Romans want, he could stay in power and he could have a kind of tradition within, within Israel that he wanted for the people to have. It was someone who was power hungry and he just wanted to remain in power. Jesus was born into an era that was rife with political and socioeconomic tension. I want you to remember that word. It was, there was tension. Have you ever asked yourself, why was Jesus born then? From a historical point of view, why was he born into this climate, this situation, with this tension? Why not? Why wasn't he born when Israel was doing well, where Michael sermons that every Jew had their fig tree and their vine, when their favorite king, King David, was at the throne and things were going well, and they were a nation, and they were powerful? Have you ever asked yourself, why then? Why not, why not when David was around? Why not immediately succeed David? Why was he born in such a tense environment? Well, let's continue to find out. This reality I'm talking about also was very was at home within his own family. Think about that for a moment, right? Today, we treat the impregnation of Mary as, a, as casual and expected. We're all too familiar with the story. Can you imagine the miracle of immaculate birth? Let me remind you of something. The Holy Spirit was involved in creation once before. When was that? Anyone? Again, yes. In Genesis, the creation of the earth. Now, just like in Genesis where the Spirit was hovering over the earth, this formless waters where nothing existed in creation, just the same way the Spirit of God hovered over Mary, over her womb, and brought life. Isn't that amazing? Let me read it to prove it. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read a portion of verse 2 from the Amplified. The Spirit of God was moving, hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. I love that word brooding. 
It speaks of like a dove brooding. It speaks of something is about to happen. There's intimacy. There's life about to happen. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit was involved in, in the conception of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 34 to 35 in the message. Mary said to the angel, But how? How? How, how can I be pregnant? I've never been with a man. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest hover, will hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring birth to will be called Holy Son of God. Isn't that amazing? I found that beautiful in preparing. Is that we forget the role of all three, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the creation, and we forget the role of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in Jesus' conception. Now, put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. An amazing miracle has happened in your life, but you're not yet married. Now, Imagine the extreme social implications of this birth and its timing, particularly its timing for both Mary and Joseph. The Holy Spirit impregnates a Jewish teenager before she was married. She was only engaged to be married, and engagement was a serious thing then. And they were, he was, Joseph was probably getting all his ducks in a row before he could support his, his future wife, but it hadn't happened yet. He wasn't ready. They, they weren't intimate, and now she's pregnant. Let's read Matthew 1, verse 18 to 19 in the message. The birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. Before they came to the marriage bed, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. Joseph, chagrined but noble, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. Think about Joseph's position, right? And I think our Lord... And father really picked well for a natural father for his son. Put yourself in, men, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. The woman you're about to marry, you're trying to get your life in order. She comes and she tells you, I'm pregnant, first of all. You're like, what the freak? Well, she cheated on me. And then she tells you, no, I'm pregnant with the future savior. Now she's crazy. <laughs> she's absolutely bonkers. I thought God's like, we've got to send an angel because this guy's going to think she's nuts. Right? And I believe that's why he got... He was going to... But look at, the, look at the compassion of the man. In those days, it was just as frowned upon, probably more frowned upon, I would say, for a woman to be impregnated before they were married. Now, do you know, ultimately, she could have been put to death. That's how severe adulterous affairs were in those days. Now, she's a teenage woman. She's engaged to be married, but now she's pregnant. And she must have been subject... Ladies, let's put yourselves in Mary's shoes. She must have been subject to a lot of talk, rumors, scandalous talk. You know, like I said, it was a deeply religious and traditional time. It mustn't have been easy. Let me read a, a quote from Ginny Cubitt's Moyer. The Gospel of Matthew explains that Joseph was a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose Mary to shame. So he decided to divorce her quietly. Now, the word divorce means that that's how serious they took engagement. They took it as a, a commitment already before the vows were going to be taken and before the covenant would be established. Engagement was more serious than we treat marriage today, I would dare say, in those days. Matthew 1.19, this indicates that although Joseph generally respected the law, he did not want to subject Mary to derision, judgment, and possible death. 
Though we don't know a lot about the logistics of what it means to divorce someone quietly at this time, it presumably means that Joseph intended to dissolve the union with as little fanfare as possible. It's clear that he had no desire to see her publicly humiliated or put to death for what he believed to be her transgression. Like I said, I, I believe our Heavenly Father chose the perfect natural father for his son. So I just want to bring home the reality of these two teenagers. We know one was definitely a teenager, but these two youngsters, not only are they carrying the responsibility of the Savior in their arms, but now they're, they're put in difficult situations. they put in a tense... I think we, we think, like I said, we're reminded of the nativity and how beautiful it is, but we forget that Mary went to Elizabeth. And why did she go to Elizabeth? Because the angel gave her a tangible... She said, your, your cousin Elizabeth will also be pregnant. So she rushed to Elizabeth to remember, it's true. She, I, I, you can't take a pregnancy test in those days. <laughs> she must have felt maybe a little bit nauseous. Certain things haven't happened. But she needed, she needed evidence. She needed stability. She needed, just like all of us, we believe, but we need that substan- substance of the word. And she ran for that evidence for Elizabeth, and that's when we read about John the Baptist jumping in the womb. It's an amazing story. Now let's talk about how the news of this birth didn't just stay within this family, but it shook the world. It shook Herod, it shook Jerusalem, and it shook the world. Michael mentioned the Magi, and as we know, I'm catching up from the part where the Magi passed King Herod thinking he might know. Maybe he's a righteous king, he might know where the the future savior of Israel is going to be, so they go and ask him. And he doesn't know, and then they say, okay, well, we'll find him. And then Herod says, he says, well, when you know, let me know. And we know why. Let me read from Matthew chapter 2, verse, the second part of verse 2 to verse 3 from the Passion Translation. Where is the child who is born king of the Jewish people? We observed his star rising in the sky, and we've come to bow down before him in worship. King Herod was shaken to the core when he heard this. Not only him, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed when they heard this news. That's amazing. You see, this is a long-time promise. This promise of the Savior goes all the way back to the creation account. I'm, heard you, I'm sure you heard me say it before. When Adam and Eve are about to get kicked out of the garden, and the serpent is going to get cursed, he says, but another will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And that's Jesus, because then it speaks about how the serpent will bite his ankle. And that speaks of the cross. Now, in Jewish culture, they've been waiting for this political savior. They've been waiting for this person who's going to come and rescue them. And again, remember the historical context. They're under oppression once again in their timeline. We're Roman occupation. They're under stress. So when the news breaks out, our savior has been born. Can you imagine the tension? The, can, can you imagine, I mean, today, something happens in the news, and there's, in South Africa, you know, ESCOM just shuts our lights down, and there's like tension in the air. Can you imagine for a country that's been waiting centuries for their Savior to be born, when the news breaks out, and it goes directly to their king, can you imagine how charged the atmosphere was? Now, we know God's warns, God warns the Magi, and they don't go back and report the location of Jesus to Herod because we know what he wanted to do. So what does a panicked, power-hungry king do when his position is seemingly threatened? 
He does everything in his power to stay in power, as all corrupt leaders do. And we read Matthew 2, verse 16 to 17 from the message. Herod, when he realized that the scholars had tricked him, flew into a rage. He commanded the murder of every little boy, two years old and under, who lived in Bethlehem and its surrounding hills. It says here, he determined that age from the information he had gotten from the scholars. That's when Jeremiah's sermon was fulfilled. Now before I read, the, they quote Jeremiah 31.15. I just want you, I think we underplay again. The nativity, I don't know what it is, maybe it's just me. But I think the nativity scene has become such a tradition thing we do every year. But these are young children being massacred. Jesus was born in an environment where his fellow friends of, of male, you know, would have been male descent, they were all murdered, two years and younger. Now, there's no, there's no real evidence of how many it was. Some people have very low figures and some people have very high figures, but that doesn't matter. Jesus was born in an environment where there was death and tragedy all around. And for me, when I, my, one of my most impactful Bible studies that I did this year was taken from this passage I'm about to read, Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, which really impacted me. And I'm going to share just a snippet of that today. Is They quote Jeremiah 31, 15. And I want you to read it and understand, and I'm going to unpack it very quickly for you. This is what it says. A sound was heard in Ramah, weeping and much lament, Rachel weeping for her children, Rachel refusing all solace, her children gone, dead, and buried. Let me read you a quote from the Amplified Footnote. A reference to Jacob's, which is known as Israel's wife, was Rachel, the mother of the children of Israel. Now, quick recap, you all know who Jacob is, right? And you all know that Rachel was his favored wife, right? He got tricked the first time. He really wanted Rachel. He got Rachel, and Rachel had two sons. Anybody know what the sons' names were? Sorry? Joseph and Benjamin, right? We know Joseph's story. And, and Benjamin is tied closely to Joseph's story. And therefore, you understand why Jacob loved those two children the most. Now, I want you to, we're going to carry on reading and understand why even more after Rachel, how he really loved these two children. Here, her grief over the slaughter of babies by Herod parallels the grief of Israel when they were conquered and deported by the Babylonians. So, so what Matthew does, he inserts Jeremiah 31, 15, and he draws a comparison, similarity, a parallel between the grief that Bethlehem and the surrounding areas experienced was the same as, firstly, how Israel, when they were conquered and deported by the Babylonians. So this, Rachel is used as a metaphor to speak of loss, tragedy, and death. You all got that. We're going to unpack it further. The image is that Rachel weeping for the children of Israel from her grave. Matthew takes Jeremiah's words, which originally referred to the grief over Babylonian captivity, and applies them to Herod's slaughter of the babies. Now, there's three levels of depth here that I'm going to quickly go through. Quotation of Jeremiah 31.15 was originally, when we speak of Rachel, it speaks of, it speaks of her death. Rachel died in childbirth giving birth to Benjamin. 
And she died in childbirth just a few kilometers away from Bethlehem. Now, for me, that was amazing. Where you can't, I think Matthew is doing this for a specific reason. I think we don't give enough credit to the, the biblical writers. Here he's talking about Jesus' birth, and he's talking about what his birth was surrounded by, the death and the tragedy of these sons being murdered. And then he quotes a very politically heavy quotation from Jeremiah 31. And with that quotation at the forefront of their minds is they know that Rachel died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Tragedy and birth. Just a few kilometers away from Bethlehem. Same way as Jesus was born, new life amongst tragedy. I've already explained the second level, where that was used as a metaphor to explain the loss and the tragic tragedy of when Israel suffered under the destruction and occupation of Babylon, when they came and destroyed Jerusalem, right? Now, I want us to look even deeper, a third level. And I encourage you to read through Jeremiah 31, if, even tonight, after you've done your homework on Psalm 119. Read through Jeremiah 31, because the imagery is profound, and this is where I'm going to use this as a turning point. You guys say, what kind of bleak Christmas message is this? <laughs> but guess what? The news didn't stop there. And Jeremiah 31 is headlined, The Lord will turn mourning to joy. Let's read from verse 31 to 34. And it's titled, if you read in your Bible, in Jeremiah, it's titled, The New Covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Powerful. Now you understand why Matthew puts this right in the middle. Because in amongst this tragic situation, there is hope. And not just any hope. The personification of hope, Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not come to this earth, we would not all know the loving Father. Amen? Amen? It changes from a religion to a relationship through his, the immaculate conception to his life on this earth to the death on the cross. I just love the, what, what Matthew does there. You see... Today, the day we celebrate is not just the celebration of our Savior being born, but it's hope itself being born. Jesus is the personification of hope. He is the reason why we, we are in the faith. We are the reason why we can hope, and Christians are supposed to be a people of hope, right? I gave it to you from a perspective of what, what I enjoy, the historical cultural background, but I also gave you for another reason. Understanding the real reality of what Jesus walked into, what he was born into, amplifies the good news of his birth. It contrasts it. 
Because we live in a world today which will highlight how dark things are, how bad things are getting, how relationships are being destroyed, how people don't know who they really are, how identity is not established, how this world is in a mess, how our country is in a mess. But guess what? That's in the same situation Jesus was born into. That is the exact same environment that he came, and he changed history forever. Our calendars were rebooted. We started on a new day, right? Jesus brought hope into this world. I'm going to read Luke chapter 2 again from verse 10 to 11 from the Passion Translation. But the angel reassured them, saying, Don't be afraid, for I come to bring you evangelion, good news, the most joyous news the world has ever heard. And it is for everyone everywhere. For today in Bethlehem, a rescuer was born for you. He is Lord Yahweh, the Messiah. Now, understand, Luke brings the account, the gospel account, from a unique perspective. He brings it to shepherds. He brings, if you read Luke's account on the whole gospel, he always focuses on the down and outs. He always focuses on the, the people that are not well known, the people that are outcasts in society. Now, who gets the news first? Shepherds. Shepherds are bringing the good news, and he says, this news is for everybody, the disenfranchised. Now, for me, the word good news just jumped out when I read that, because it is the word, Greek word evangelion. Now, the word evangelion is where we get evangelism. Let me give you what I really, really appreciate, the true definition of good news, evangelion. It comes from the Bible Project. It says, a royal announcement. The biblical words for gospel, evangelion, good news, or related, one word, refer to the message of good news. It is not just any news. The word is used most often to refer to an important event regarding rulers and their kingdoms. When King David wins a battle, this is good news because it means he is still reigning on his throne. When King Solomon is made king over Israel, it's good news announcement is spread throughout the land. In other words, gospel is a royal term, reporting good news about the ruler in charge. And while the news has deep personal consequences for the people who hear it, it is no private religious matter, nor is it simply advice. The gospel that Solomon is now king is very public announcement with huge personal implications for everyone living under his rule. Let me change it again. When Jesus came on the scene, the king of, the, of this world's reign was coming to an end. That's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Because this good news, this new ruler was about to establish his throne on this earth. That is the best news anyone has ever heard who walked this earth. That we are no longer subject to a king that brings death, destruction, and pain. We are under a king that brings life, and he brings it more abundantly. You see, in this difficult situation that Jesus was born, where he was surrounded, where he encountered and understand the heart of Jesus, where he walked to the people that were the most disenfranchised, the lepers, the prostitutes, the sick, the tax collectors, even tax collectors. He went to their houses and ate with them because his heart was for them. He wanted to bring a new life, a new hope. And like I said, Jesus is the personification of hope. And I want to unpack this word hope in conclusion. You see, I don't know if, I'm sure many of you have had a difficult and painful year this year. I'm sure it's not, like any year, it's not always a walk in the park. Our country, like we've discussed, our world is rife with political and socio-economic tension right now. 
But the beauty is, it's these are the moments God chooses to bring His good news, His evangelion. This is the moments where God brings hope. Dad has been recently speaking about raising our expectation, increasing our capacity to expect more from God. Let me give you the true definition of hope. A lot of you would say hope is hoping for the best. Circumstantial, maybe things will work out. Let's hope so. That is absolutely wrong. I want you to erase that definition from your mind. That is not the biblical definition of hope. Let me give it to you. The word hope in Hebrew actually means to expect or have some sort of expectation. There are two words, two Hebrew words in the Old Testament for hope. Yachal, which means to wait. And the other, chava, which means, comes from the root meaning cord. Let me explain. The verb cord has to do with tension of anticipation, of waiting for something. When something is tight, it's tense. Like when a cord is pulled tightly and becomes tense until it snaps and the tension is released. So, let me give you the perfect illustration, actually. The perfect illustration of this biblical hope is found in children. And I'll give you my children as an example. Andy and Eliana, like all kids, have been eagerly and impatiently waiting for this day. <laughs> Christmas Day. Counting down the number of sleeps. And every night, Andy says, after this sleep, is it Christmas? No, Andy. And you would have to give him the real number. This is the tension of anticipation, of waiting and expecting something. Now, do they have any doubt in their mind that Christmas is coming? No. They know it's coming. They can't wait for it to come. And that tension just gets tighter and tighter until they experience what they've been longing for. This is the true meaning of hope, biblical hope. There's, it's not optimism. This country doesn't need optimism. It needs biblical hope, a true expectation of that something better is at hand. In Hebrew, hope isn't just a pie-in-the-sky dream of what may be. It's about real anticipation for something better, something you truly believe is coming. Biblical hope is based on a person, not on optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see how circumstances, however difficult, could work out for the best. Biblical hope isn't about circumstances at all. People who yachal or chava in the Bible often recognize that really there is no, there's no way anything is going to get better. If they look at the situation, well, I can't really see how things are going to get better in this country, so I'm just going to leave. No, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope does not look at the circumstances, but looks at ex expectation to their Savior for redemption. They recognize and they choose hope anyway. That's who Christians are. They do not deny the reality that they're in, but they know there's a greater reality upon them and above them and hovering, waiting to manifest itself. In the New Testament, Peter and Paul use a Greek word for hope, alpis. Is that fine? <laughs> alpis is the expectation of what is certain. I love that. The Greeks go even further. They make it more obvious. Alpis is the expectation of what is sure, what is certain. It's expecting something that is inevitable. Like Christmas Day is inevitable for kids. And we know in the writings, and we sang that song, Living Hope, and we know when Paul, Paul writes that, it's speaking about a real expectation founded and grounded in the resurrection of Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 
We hope for the liberation of God's creation from corruption through the work of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to unpack that today, but we know that we are redeemed. Our spirit man is redeemed, but there's far more redemption that is to take place. Our physical bodies have to be redeemed. This fallen world has to be redeemed. Our king has to completely finish everything. And we wait, we hope, in expectation for that day to come, knowing full well it is coming. Amen? Christian hope is a bold hope that looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. It is not about having an optimism that everything will work out in the end. It's a hope in the work and person of Jesus Christ that creation cannot and will not remain how it is. And that is the greatest hope of all. Before I prepared this this message, I found myself in a position, maybe in the same position that, that you find yourself in, that you need to be reminded of hope. You need to be reminded of the true meaning and the true essence of hope. A hope that doesn't come willy-nilly, but it comes through in and through a person of Christ. And I, I trust that this message will do that for you. I'm going to conclude with two quotes again. First one is Billy Graham. You know Billy Graham. 1969, on the reason for Christmas, he's asked for the reason for Christmas, and this is what he says. Christmas should be a time of renewed hope. Not hope in a polit- particular political concept, but Christmas hope, Christian hope, hope in Jesus Christ, hope that despite our tangled bungling, God will bring order out of chaos. Now another quote I'll give you, maybe someone you you never expected. Pope Francis also reflects on the hopefulness of Christmas. For a Christian then, hope means the certainty of being on a journey with Christ toward the Father who awaits us. Francis said, adding that this hope offers a goal, a good destiny in the present, the salvation of humanity, the beatitude of those who entrust themselves to the merciful God. Hope never stops. It's always on a journey and makes us walk forward, he added. Through Christ's birth, hope entered the world. He said, explaining that the true meaning of Christmas is found in the act of God fulfilling his promise of salvation in becoming man. God doesn't abandon his people. He draws near. For me, that perfectly sums up what Christmas should be for all of us believers. This is what the world needs. The world needs true hope. And that is up to us to spread this good news, this gospel, this evangelion, this person of hope, Jesus Christ. In conclusion, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 9 from the Amplified. Blessed, grateful, praised, and adored be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant and boundless mercy has caused, caused us to be born again. That is, to be reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, and set apart for His purpose, to an ever-living hope and confident assurance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I hope, as I was encouraged in preparing this message, I hope that you are too, and that's a biblical hope, knowing full well that if you put yourself towards the Scriptures, like Dad is encouraging all of us to do, and not just do it as a religious tradition and exercise, but looking for this hope that is a certainty, that you will find it, that you read Jeremiah 31, that you read Psalm 119, and you discover this hope of humanity, that Jesus Christ 
is, is personified. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.